This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm, I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Now this show is about you, so we're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at the Art of Charm live programs here in Los Angeles, check out the Art of Charm toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where you'll get the fundamentals such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating and attraction, business networking and negotiation, relationship management, breakups, a lot of that stuff that's more important than you might think. Our live programs are running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. Details at bootcamps.theartofcharm.com. Note the two dots in there or give us a call here in the office, 888-413-7177, or you can email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I do read everything. Looking forward to meeting all of you guys here at The Art of Charm. Today we've got writer Scott H. Young. He's been on the show before. He's also the author of Learn More, Study Less. And in 2011, he actually learned MIT's four-year curriculum for computer science in 12 months without taking any classes. We're gonna talk a little bit about that. Recently, he came back from a year almost entirely without using English. He lived in Spain, Brazil, China, and Korea, learning languages. We're gonna discuss a little bit of language learning and how even language learning in your own country can apply to people who don't care about languages or travel, if that's you, and how the principles apply to making it in your own culture and country, and understanding cultural differences as an adaptation to different circumstances, showing people respect and how it doesn't need to undermine your confidence, as well as how to apply a lot of these foreign travel concepts back home, boots on the ground, in your own life, regardless of whether you've even been out of the country or not. So enjoy this one with Scott H. Young. What's one sentence I, you could use to describe what you do? Right, so I would say that I help people learn better and be more productive in their lives. So that's what I like to write about, that's what I like to do projects about, and I just recently finished this project learning languages, uh, traveling around four countries, three months each learning languages, so I'm really all about trying to figure out how you can do things better and more efficiently. So you also finished the MIT four-year curriculum for computer science in 12 months without taking any classes. You know, that's yeah. one of those things, and don't get me wrong, that's super impressive. I kind of wonder secretly if like we were three whiskeys deep, you might be like, it wasn't that bad, and the classes are probably hugely tedious, and most people could maybe do that if they could get into MIT in the first place. Would you agree <laughs> with that, or am I just totally bursting well, a bubble think, that you don't no, want to no, burst? No, I think, like, I've said this all along, that I think it sounds a lot more difficult than it is, because when you're in actual, like, yes, you do have to learn all that material. I'm not saying that um, what they teach in MIT is in computer science is very easy, but at the same time, I think that what I've really been trying to do all along is showing that if you question some of the assumptions about how you're doing things, uh, you can often get, you know, most of the benefit, most of the things that you want to learn out of it with a lot less waste, a lot less time. And, you know, university is certainly an example of something that very rigid bureaucratic process that is amenable to that. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. We had another guy on the show before, Jay Cross, who you probably know, who talks yeah, about yeah. 
do-it-yourself degree. And and that was like, I when I heard that show, it was one of those bittersweet things because I was like, so many people can do this. And then I was like, so much time and money wasted on actually going to college and sitting through lectures and sleeping through lectures and kind of going through the motions when, honestly, they did nothing for my performance on the exam, which was the only thing that counted. And even then, the whole course was a prereq for another course, which was a prereq for another course that was the course I actually wanted to take. Definitely, definitely. And I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize when we're talking about this is that the environment for learning things, being able to teach yourself things has changed radically with, you know, the internet and these new technologies. And so this whole thing I did with MIT was only possible because MIT themselves puts up the material for you know, hundreds, maybe even thousands of their courses online for free that you can just download. You can just download the exams and the solution keys. Like I would not have been able to do this. I could have maybe gone to a library and read a lot of books, but I wouldn't have been able to benchmark it against what an actual MIT student does until, you know, just a couple years ago, that would have not been possible. So this is really very new and very exciting. Do you have like a, a smug little thing that you do when you meet an actual MIT student? Because I would, <laughs> I would have a little thing. I don't know what it would be, but I'd be like, oh yeah, I did that in two years. <laughs> so it's funny you mention that because when I was in the middle of doing it, so this was sort of when I was saying that I was going to try to do this, but I hadn't actually done it yet. I got a lot of hate mail from <laughs> MIT students. And then once I actually finished, that pretty much all dried up. So. Yeah, I'm sure it was something along the lines of, you smug bastard, I can't wait for you to see how hard this actually is. Pretty much, pretty much. Well, I think there was a lot of skepticism, I, I think, because when, if I were in actually in MIT, if I were doing it at MIT, I had to go through all the hoops an actual MIT student would do. There's no way I could have done it in one year. The way I was able to do it in one year was I can do the classes whenever I want to do the classes. I write the exams as soon as I'm ready. I don't have to schedule it. You know, there's a lot of inefficiencies that I was able to remove because I didn't have to jump through the same hoops. So my argument isn't that I'm so much better than MIT students, but rather that there's this new paradigm for teaching yourself things that I think would be really useful to a lot of people who want to learn a subject, want to get something better, um, maybe either to brush up on something they did learn in university, maybe to prepare themselves for a graduate program that they don't feel equipped for. And you don't necessarily have to do that going through school. That's cool. Yeah, it's funny because I just, and this just sort of came to me, it's largely like, it's analogous to the art of charm because what we try to do is pack maybe 10 years, give or take, of positive social experience into our training program with the prep and the follow-up, of course, but also into the week-long program. And people are like, that's impossible. But with guys like you doing a four-year curriculum in 12 months, it's like, no, it's it's totally possible if you get rid of all of the hoops and all of the this and that and the the fear and the anxiety part and the whole ramp up and the ramp down and then the bureaucratic crapola that goes along with getting it done. When you get rid of all of that stuff, you might not have, like you don't have a degree from MIT, do you, framed on your wall? No, but no, you have this, you have a lot of the same skills. And we're going to get email from people who went to MIT who are like, no, you don't understand. The <laughs> clinics are where the value is. And they might be totally right on some of that stuff. Like the clinics are where the value is, being able to bounce stuff off of professors and things like that. But the fact is they can't argue that you got at least a significant percentage of what they got and you got it for free and in one-fourth the time. Yeah, like I wouldn't say that what I was doing was, you know, a perfect replica of what an MIT student is. The only way it could be a perfect replica is if I, did everything exactly the way they did it, and then that's not really that interesting. 
And what I'm instead arguing is that I think that there is something very valuable there. And if you're reducing the cost from hundreds of thousands of dollars to like, you know, a thousand or so for textbooks and from four years down to one year, and I didn't have to move to Boston, I think there's an argument to be made there that that could be really valuable. And I think the same thing is true of your students who go through your program that, you know, there's probably going to be people who argue, well, if you don't have that 10 years of experience doing X and Y, that you don't really know those things. But maybe you can get the 80% that you want. And if it takes you, you know, 10% of the time or 20% of the time, then that's still really valuable. It doesn't mean that the people who are criticizing it are exactly wrong, but I just think it's a little unfair to judge it by that perspective. Yeah, I, t I totally agree. I totally agree. And you've done some other, like you said before, offline here, you came back from a year of travel almost not using English. You lived in Spain, Brazil, China, Korea, and you were just learning languages. I mean, that's cool and amazing and sounds like something I would do and then, and have done. Do we, are you fluent in Korean, Chinese, Portuguese, and Spanish now or, or what? So, yeah, fluent's a really hard word to say because it, it is. applies different things to people. So, more specific, I'll be more specific because to some people, and I think particularly people who have not learned a foreign language in adult, fluent means bilingual, means that you are equally good in that language right. as you're English. And by that standard, I'm not. And actually, if you look at research on actual bilinguals, people who grew up speaking both languages, it turns out they aren't either. So right. it's very, very difficult to have, let's say, my level of fluency in English in any of these languages, and certainly impossible at three months. However, the much lower standard, so the standard that some people would consider uh, fluency, I, I would call it conversational fluency, is the idea of you could sit me down with a person who doesn't speak English from that country and say, you know, we need to have a conversation about X. And assuming X is not a highly technical or sophisticated topic, I would say that I could do that very comfortably in Spanish, Portuguese, and Chinese. And Korean would be a little more difficult, but I could still have somewhat more simple conversations in Korea. I wouldn't maybe be able to discuss the intricacies of philosophy or art, but right. have a little bit of a better time doing that. So are these like cab driver style but not just directions, but like, you know, hey, where are you from? Did you grow up in this city? No, I grew up outside the city. Oh, it sounds quiet out there. Like things like that, like basically no, like that. No, no. I, I would say like that to me, it would be very beginner level to me. I, I would say like, for example, I, I had a conversation with this uh, guy in China who was uh, like a Buddhist guy. And we were talking about the political situation in Tibet. Like that's, I wasn't necessarily expressing my viewpoints with necessarily the same uh, expressiveness that I could now, but we could have a conversation. He doesn't speak English and we could talk about, you know, the Communist Party and uh, the situation in Tibet and, and things like that. So, you know, just saying where you're from and my name is this, I think that's that's a little bit much if you're extending that to being conversational fluency. But, you know, I could I could definitely get by in those kinds of conversations with people. Cool. Yeah, that's really that's super interesting. And Fluent is really tough. Luckily, my level of English is so poor that raising it in another language is, is a really easy bar. So <laughs> matching it, not raising it. So I think that, I mean, that's really fascinating. And so you had to obviously hack those processes as well, because, you know, me not living in China, learning Chinese from a textbook with a one-on-one -on -one Skype teacher, it's pretty good after a couple of years. But I'll tell you, I went to Germany and I lived there for 10 months and my German is like, I can speak German after I warm up maybe a little bit, I can speak German with Germans and they're like, 
where are you from? You have kind of a weird, are you from the South? And I'm like, I'm from the United States. And like, what are you talking about? Yeah, you that's know? really good. That's, that's a, that's a very high level. And, and that was like going to public school in Germany. Like I know the names for elements and chemicals and things like that. And, and weird things that, that you'd never would learn from any kind of book because there's no reason that you would. But if you learn organic chemistry in high school, well, you learn it. But having that sort of different experience, Chinese is the only language that I've learned not living there. So I definitely understand the different types of maybe fluency that you're talking about. It's so funny, I don't know why anybody would wanna learn a language without living in a place unless you absolutely couldn't. And Chinese is, is that for me right now, and my girlfriend speaks Chinese, which is the only real motivator to keep going. But otherwise, man, just going there, living with it, learning it naturally, it's a hell of a lot easier, it's way more fun, and it sticks with you longer, and then it works out better in the end. So I just wanna throw that out there, because I know a lot of people are like, I'm studying Italian for the next year, and then I'm gonna go to Italy, and it's like, dude, just go to Italy, forget it, like, don't ramp up, it's a waste of your time. Definitely, I think that living in the other country is very good, but I wanna caution, I know you had that experience being in a public school in Germany and learning that, but I have met a lot of people who have not, they, they haven't been forced into immersion. They just, I'm going to go live in France and maybe work there, or I'm going to go to, you know, Taiwan and work there. And you would not believe how many people I've met in my travels who have lived in, especially Asian countries, for decades, and they cannot parse together more than a simple sentence in the language. And so I think that, yes, going to the country is extremely helpful. I don't think there's any real doubt of that. But I also want to stress that if you go there with the idea that, oh, it'll just happen naturally, I don't have to put in any work, I don't have to discipline my own thinking, discipline my, the way that I'm going to approach learning the language, uh, then it will be very easy for you to be like many of the people I've met who, you know, just years later, they just, all you hear them talk about is, is complaining about how difficult it is and not actually being able to speak it. Yeah, they, well, they were right, huh? They're, it's so hard because they never tried. That's such a wasted opportunity and, and such a shame in so many ways. And I, I understand that. I think being unhappy in a culture or feeling like you can't assimilate, feeling like you can't actually blend in at all, which is tougher, especially in places where everyone looks different and maybe you don't love all of the things they love and you can't make local friends because you can't talk to them. It's all sort of self-reinforcing. You go to China and you go, all right, I need to learn this language, and you get a tutor because you're having a little bit of trouble breaking into the social circles because you don't speak Chinese and because you're white or whatever, or not Chinese or not Asian, and then you learn a little bit. It's really challenging. You're not applying it. You're not practicing it. Real life sets in. You've got a job there. You're conducting that mostly in your native language, English or whatever, so then you're like, oh, well, you know, I'll learn this as it comes, and you kind of know that's not true, but you kind of hope that you're wrong, and then a couple of years go by and you, you start to kick yourself for it, but then you also start to resent the local culture because you feel like you're not really a part of it and you start to retreat back into your expat circle of reinforced thinking where everybody else is kind of annoyed that they live there, but they're there with Siemens and they live in their expat neighborhood with their expat school, with their expat friends, and then you're just like, screw it. And it's like three years in, four, five years in, 10 years in, you're like, eh, I don't need to learn this anyway. And you just start rejecting it. Well, that can definitely happen. I think also if you're going to um, an Asian country, realize that you know Asian languages they have 
fewer similarities with English. You're going to have to learn more vocabulary to get in there. That does not mean that you can't learn it. That doesn't even mean that it's so hard that, you know, what we're saying is, isn't valid that, you know, you shouldn't try. But I think that it's very easy when you go to one of these countries, uh, like Korea, for example, if you live in Seoul, there's quite a few people who speak English, um, to just see all these other white people who also don't speak any Korean and just convince yourself that's fine, that, it, you know, you don't need to learn Korean, that it doesn't matter or that it does matter, but it's maybe too hard to do. And my solution to this, this was actually not just me, it was me and a friend who went and my friend had no experience learning languages in, as an adult after. Like he wasn't born in Canada, so he did learn English, but he learned English, you know, throughout his childhood. So he'd never gone to another country and learned it like the way you learn German. And we went to these countries and we decided that the rule we were going to use, just one rule for learning these languages was going to be we were not going to speak in English. And that's a little extreme. I'm not saying that everybody has to do that. Obviously, you're going somewhere. Maybe you have to use English for your job. Maybe you have a spouse or someone else that speaks English that you need to speak English with. But if you, we just went no English and we were able to do that um, pretty much perfectly in uh, Spain and Brazil. China was a little harder and Korea was a bit harder still. But even just the idea in the back of our head that we're not supposed to be speaking English ever um, meant that every single communication situation, we had to learn how to do with it, deal with it in that country. And you'd be amazed at how much language learning you can compress into a short period of time. You know, it's like you go right into the deep end and you just have to swim. Yeah, I think that's, that's brilliant. And so you eventually made native speaker friends because otherwise speaking bad language with a bunch of people around you that don't know proper language, you'll, you'll learn poor English or poor language really quickly. And we see this with subgroups even in our own culture where entire areas speak totally with incorrect grammar, or incorrect vocabulary or low vocabulary or the, almost like a language that doesn't make sense and isn't official, quote unquote. Certainly, certainly. I think um, in the beginning, in the transition phase, I think it's completely okay to speak with other beginners um, just because the kinds of mistakes you're going to be making are mostly going to be due to processing constraints. They're going to be, you probably either have not learned the right way, or if you learn the right way, you're not fluent enough. You don't have the automatic recall of grammar and vocabulary to do it correctly. So masculine and feminine is very common in European languages. And even to this day, when I'll be speaking, if I'm speaking quickly, I will screw it up. And I usually realize about like half second after I say something that I use the wrong uh, vocabulary for that. And that's just because the processing constraints of thinking about what's the word for this and expressing the right grammar mean that it's hard to do that. Uh, I think that speaking with actual natives becomes more important as you enter into an intermediate and advanced phase, because then you'll start using things incorrectly and you won't notice that there's a better way of doing it once those processing constraints kind of get uplifted. So I wouldn't even worry too much about um, needing to speak with natives at the beginning. We went to Spain and we had a lot of friends from like Italy and France in the beginning. And then later we made Spanish speaking friends. And basically we just said, no, we're just speaking in Spanish. And they were also trying to learn Spanish. So they're like, great, you know, you're doing this better than, than we are. You're more strict than we are. So we just kept going with that. And I think that can be a really good transition to, you know, full native conversations with people. Awesome. How do we apply these things? There's a lot of people listening. They're like, I don't want to learn languages. I don't care about that. But we always have to deal with new groups of people with different 
either languages or, or just cultures, right? And so how, do, how can we apply the principles and concepts of language learning, language hacking to just our own, our own city? Right. So I have a good friend. Uh, his name's John Mean. I, I asked him if I could mention it. I really like this guy because I, like, I did this travel and I went to other countries and I did the immersion there. And there is a certain feeling when you're traveling in another country, I think at least amongst a lot of us, that you, know, you are a visitor there. You, you should at least attempt to understand how you do, they do things, even if maybe you disagree with it. We, we don't want to be the boorish tourist that's, you know, why don't they do things the way they do in uh, North America while we're abroad. But I think that that lesson is very hard to apply when we're talking about subcultures within our society. So if you are an academic and you meet with some entrepreneurs, you might look at them and look at their culture, the way they think about things and act and real think, you know, it's inferior to what you're doing. Or maybe, you know, you hang out with uh, more preppy people and there's some hipsters you see and you think them to be, you know, you don't like their culture, you don't like what they're doing. And my friend has just this incredible ability to assimilate into these subcultures. Like you could get him into a group of almost any type of people and he would figure out how they operate, how they think about things and be able to be good friends with them. And that's an incredibly powerful skill, perhaps more powerful than, than learning other languages and other cultures because it works where you live. It works exactly where you are right now. You don't have to move to take advantage of it. And the big rule, this is the number one thing he taught me about this. You have to find something that you respect in the other person. And if you don't find that respect, if you don't have that foundation of respect to start off of, then it's basically impossible to really understand their culture and their dialogue. Yeah, that actually makes total sense. There's no way that you can get into a subculture or a subgroup without being able to assimilate a little bit. It, and it, I actually have been quite skilled at this. I'm not sure if it's natural or what, but it, it has to do maybe with growing up and being thrust into diversity situations, if you will, all over the place, and definitely got better at it as I moved from culture to culture because you sort of realize, all right, I'm the odd man out here if I'm the only white guy at work, or I'm the odd man out here if I'm the American living in the former East Germany. I need to figure out how to make this work. I can't expect everybody to conform to me because I'm the invisible guy, right? And so it becomes kind of a survival thing, but I think a lot of times people reject that and they feel like they're going to have to sort of fight to stay who they are and all this stuff. And, it, and mostly that comes, I think, from fear and going, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can get in here. But the, it's such an invaluable skill set because no matter where you are, even if you just join a new office, there's going to be a subculture of that workplace. And if you can't adapt to that, which is what people are, not to spoil people's parades here, but as an employer, we're mostly hiring for culture, skills and culture, and sometimes, depending on the job, just culture. Cultural fit is super important to companies that know what they're doing when they hire because they know that they can't really train that, but they can train a lot of the other things. So if you're able to come into a workplace and assimilate and fit in, especially during like maybe a trial period, the 90-day, first 90-day type thing, if you can assimilate really well and build the connections in there, you're going to have a much easier time not only keeping that job, but getting on the projects you want, getting promoted, and succeeding within that company. So this isn't just something for guys who like to backpack. Definitely. Like, absolutely. And I think 
the real lesson for me is that you you uh, you hear this advice sometimes that you want to be confident. You want to seem confident. You want to approach people. You don't want them thinking maybe you're weak. And whether or not that's a piece of cultural advice we have or just an instinct a lot of people have, I think especially a lot of men have, um, it can hurt if you see your confidence, your status as being the opposite of respect. So if I meet with this group of people, me paying them respect, me finding the thing I respect for them, if they don't also respect me, then then now we've got this inequality. And I think the problem is people see it that way. They see it as I'm paying this person respect, maybe they don't respect me and I resent that. And so I'm going to not respect them or I'm going to find something I dislike about them. And I think just to use the analogy of, of going to these other countries, a lot of people told me when I was going to China, you know, don't go to China. People are not friendly there. They're hostile to Westerners. They, they dislike us, that kind of thing. And I went there and I liked the Chinese culture and I paid respect to people. And I found the complete opposite. People wanted to hear about me. They wanted to talk to me. I was paying respect not only by understanding, trying to understand their culture better, but also I'm investing in trying to learn their language. I'm investing in trying to understand them. And I think that that lesson applies all over the world and it applies in your own country. If you meet people and you respect them, they will respect you, but you have to put the olive branch out, especially if they're from a group that maybe doesn't necessarily resonate with you. They don't really sense your sort of culture yet. If you sort of figure out, okay, this is what I respect about this person, and I'm going to let them know that, that I respect that about them, then immediately they'll become easy, they'll be open, they'll be willing to uh, let you in. And I think that's a very powerful skill. Yeah, that is a super powerful skill. I mean, you gave some examples sort of offline where understanding cultural differences as adaptation to different circumstances is a great way to start understanding this. And a lot of, I had the same thing in Germany. People were like, don't expect Germans to be friendly. You know, we say that they're the coconut shell where on the outside they're really hard and on the inside they're really sweet. And for me, I'm kind of that way just naturally anyway. So I assimilated really well to German culture per se. I didn't think that they were stuffy or uptight at all. Or maybe I'm, I'm wait, I should rephrase that. I'm just as stuffy and uptight as any German. <laughs> it was actually quite easy for me and I found the people pretty warm. However, I know that you'd given some examples in Brazil, for example, a lot of people had really aggressive dogs and it's kind of, th it's easy to say, wow, this person has this kind of dog. Obviously they don't want to make new friends. They've got this beast, you know, protecting them, but it makes sense if you think, okay, there's a large risk of property theft. People are worried about intruders and crime. So they have that. It doesn't really reflect on them as a, as a person. It doesn't reflect on who they are once you get to know them. And you said as well in China and Korea, Asians in general is a very obvious stereotype for people who live near them in the United States or Western world. They're more studious from a young age, and it makes a lot of sense when you start to see there's exams which basically determine your college acceptance and eventually your whole life, your career status, and those start to kick in around, what, middle school or something like that? Now, back to the show. Right. Well, I, the example for Korea, I believe, and maybe I'll get corrected by some Koreans on the details of this. I'm working off of memory, but there's a big exam after you finish high school, which is kind of like the SATs. But in the States, there's a little bit more flexibility in college admissions. People also look at sort of a more rounded profile. And 
Not to mention that which college you go to, at least I feel in uh, America, is not not entirely indicative of your future success in life. I know that a lot of people are able to be a little bit more entrepreneurial, a little more savvy, and they're able to work their way in. And in uh, in Korea, it was a little bit less so like that, that basically you were doing this exam uh, in your uh, high school age, which was going to largely determine the outcome of your entire life. And that creates a lot of pressure, it creates a lot of stress, and it, it really focuses a lot of people on that. And the, the example in Brazil, not to say that, you know, Brazil is some terrible, dangerous place, but there is a little bit more problems with theft and, and that kind of thing. And so getting a, a dog that's more aggressive or, you know, you don't have necessarily the same feelings about it uh, as they do here. And I don't want to say, because obviously these are generalizations. So when I talk about them, you know, I'm, I have run the risk of making this stereotype sound like it's this universal truth. And it may even just be a particular truth, but that's the thing is that when I go there and I know, make some observation, you know, wow, there's a lot of people, a lot of aggressive dogs here in Brazil. Then what I'm trying to help you guys understand is that the goal should be to understand that, try to figure out what function does that serve in their culture? What function does that work with? And I think when you do this, you realize how much more similar we are than we are different, that we may have very different behaviors, very different habits, different coping mechanisms for our society. But it's not because of some fundamental personality difference that, you know, uh, white people think like this and Asian people think like this. That's not true at all. It's just that we've developed different cultural mechanisms, cultural tools for handling, handling different contexts. And I think if you can understand that, then you can get acceptance by those people and that bridges a gap that would otherwise be very difficult to cross. Yeah, yeah, of course. Because then you just, instead of viewing people as fundamentally different, you view everybody just as an adaptation to the environment, to the cultural environment. And I think that if you put the effort in, in starting by respecting the other person and then following that up by trying to understand the things that they respond to differently than you do, if you can build off that basis of first respect and then understanding, you do realize, you know, a lot of people, you will able be able to form that connection a lot more deeply and you'll be able to understand these cultures. You'll be able to figure out how they work. And if you want something from that culture, if you're, you know, you're a salesperson and now you have to deal with doctors, for example, if you can understand that culture, that will help you in your life, in your career. If you, you know, if you have to deal with certain types of people that maybe you're not used to, then starting with this approach, starting with this basis is a way of speeding up that whole process, which would otherwise, you know, you'd have to just be with them for, you know, maybe decades to really get that same level of insight. Sure. Yeah, of course. That's interesting. And also, you and I were talking a little bit offline about how showing people respect doesn't need to undermine your confidence, because a lot of times people in an effort to sort of maintain or appear confident, it looks like a lack of respect depending on the culture, and it can drive a wedge between you and the people that you're trying to actually connect with. Well, and again, this goes back to my friend John, because uh, I like using this as an example, because this idea of like, well, you have to start by respecting the person, finding what you respect about them, and then understanding them, it has this kind of deferential quality. So I think maybe some of the guys who are listening to this are thinking, well, that sounds kind of weak. I want them to think I'm strong. I want them to think this. And my friend John, who does this, who's an expert at it, if you meet him in person, you would never, ever say that this person is not like an alpha male, that this person is not uh, strong. This person 
you respect this person when you meet him. And that's because he shows respect. And that's because he doesn't do it in a way that undermines himself. That's not like, oh, you're so good at this and I'm so terrible at this. It's not a undermining way. It's that when he meets someone, he looks at them, finds the quality that he likes, and he says, you know, I get you. You know, other people don't get you, but I get you. And that's the basis for people opening up. That's the basis for cultures opening up and allowing you to come in and interact with them. Perfect. Yeah, I love that. I think it's very common, especially for younger travelers, which are the most common kind, to to really think like, okay, I've got to look good. I've got to like look cool. I, I don't want to make mistakes so they don't maybe try the language or they don't want to show respect. Like, I don't take off my shoes. That's, you know, in America, I wear my shoes in the house or whatever, you know, whatever lame example we can throw in there. But one of the things we talk about a lot on at The Art of Charm and one of the things we really drill home in boot camp is that vulnerability is actually the best way to show strength. And vulnerability and respect go hand in hand, especially when you're talking about respecting the, the dominant culture or your elders or, or something like that. Those things go hand in hand. And especially when you're talking about maybe learning a little bit of the local language when you're traveling and to show respect for that culture. I know a lot of people who say, you know, I hated it and I lived in this country and it sucked and I lived in that country and it sucked and the people were such jerks. And the only times I've had experiences like that are when I've kind of rejected the local culture for whatever reason or had a terrible time for some other reason. And I think a lot of times, and you gave the China example where a lot of people had a tough time traveling in China, they didn't like traveling in China, but I've had a great time there. I've had an amazing time. I thought people were super friendly. I saw a ton of parallels between Chinese folks and Americans here in the United States, and I really thought that was super interesting, but I realized also the window can be as simple as learning a handful of words or at least trying to communicate in the language versus being like, why doesn't everybody speak English around this place? It's very much a function of the effort that you put in. And that's the other thing I wanted to stress too. Like we were talking a little bit about maybe what level I got in these languages. I advise anyone who is really interested in that. We made little short documentaries about it and we have longer video interviews. So you can really judge for yourself kind of what level we got. But I, I want to stress that it doesn't have to be that extreme. It doesn't have to be like, you know, I'm going to be conversationally fluent in this language in three months. That doesn't necessarily have to be your goal. It can be as simple as saying, you know, I'm going to learn a handful of phrases and I'm going to go to a place and I'm going to, you know, just try to use them. I'm going to try to use it in a restaurant. I'm going to try to order stuff here. And I've heard from a lot of people. A lot of people have told me this, that, you know, oh, they tried to learn some French and they went there and the person was so rude to them. Like they didn't want them to speak French. I would say from my experience, having done this now in five different countries in you know, three different continents, that 95% of the time, people are going to be psyched that you're trying to learn their language. They're going to be impressed by that. Even if you're not very good, even if they know that you're not very good, they're going to be impressed by that. You're going to have 5% of the other people who uh, are either trying to learn English or have learned English, and they think they're doing you the same favor. So you'll go to Paris and there'll be a restaurant and you'll say, you know, something in French to the waiter and he'll respond to you in English. And he's not thinking to himself, oh, these people, why are they trying to speak to me in French? No, he's not thinking that. He's thinking, oh, I've learned English. I'm going to help them out. So this idea that, you know, the world is full of, full of rude people who are going to like spit at you for trying to speak their language is just not true at all. I have 
I have met hundreds and hundreds of people from very different cultures, you know, from Korea to uh, Brazil. And most, most people are going to be very excited if you are making that effort. And it goes back to what we were talking about, about showing respect. When you were trying to learn someone's language, you're saying you respect who they are, where they come from. You're making an investment in them. So they're willing to make an investment in you. Awesome. Yeah, I love that. I love that. You mentioned as well that cultures aren't just global, they're local, right? Na humans, human beings in general, we're naturally a little bit xenophobic. We're hostile to outside groups. And what we do at The Art of Charm is try to lower that through drills, exercises, again, the rapport, the vulnerability, and things like that. And of, of course, the modern values have started to lower this, you know, globalization and be open and diversity and all that stuff. But it's interesting to look at somebody can go to China and be like, wow, this is really fascinating. Look at the way they do things. It's just different here. It's okay. You know, one thing's not better than the other. And then we come back home and we go 10 miles down the road to a neighborhood and it's like, look at these people. They live like animals. What a bunch of low-class morons. I can't believe they abuse our system the way they do. And we, we really, we come back, you know, right to our own neighborhood and start throwing around xenophobic stuff. And then we go to Beijing and we're like, fascinated by the differences and the diversity. It's kind of a weird... Um, a weird dichotomy. Yeah, I think uh, there was a really interesting article that I read recently where the person was talking about how somehow our in-group, or what we consider our in-group, has come to sort of include other foreign cultures because they're sort of far enough from us that we don't have any real direct conflict with them. So, uh, you know, some people maybe have kind of hostile feelings towards China, but most people have really no feelings about it. Like they've never really been there, interacted with it. So they don't really have any strong feelings either way. Whereas if you take someone, let's say from Manhattan and say, would you like to go to, you know, the Bible Belt and stay with some evangelical Christian family for three months and learn how they do things and cook and eat with them. I think you'd have a lot of people that would be very averse to doing that, that that would really be like, oh no, that's too much. I can't do that. That's too much of a culture shock. And that's because those things feel a bit closer to us. And I think that the more that we can understand and not necessarily assimilate, but at least respect and understand the cultures closer to us, it's the same thing as tolerance and cosmopolitanism in the world except it's perhaps more important because these are the kinds of conflicts that we're going to get in in everyday life. And I've seen people who are good at it, who can seamlessly move between, they can be in the Amish backcountry, or they can be in Silicon Valley, and they can get along with both groups. And it all comes down to this idea that they are curious people who are interested in how other people live, and they show people respect. They start with respect, and they only take it away if people deliberately do things to undermine it, right? Sure, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, you start with respect, exactly. And I think it helps, you know, looking at these different groups of people acting in a way we don't understand, whether that's local or whether that's overseas, that we can ask ourselves, as we discussed before, what the context might be where that, that behavior was an adaptation. Where that studiousness comes from might not just be, oh, these Asians are always trying to one-up us, you know, or maybe it's a cultural adaptation where you know, the aggression, the posturing might be an adaptation. And that's an easy one for around here because you might meet, and I'm throwing my old college roommates and stuff under the bus, but you meet these like Armenian guys and stuff and they're just like tough. And you're thinking, what's your problem? You know, we're supposed to be friends and you're throwing your weight around. And then you realize, oh, well, when you move here from a Soviet bloc country and everybody's really poor, it was kind of like this dog eat dog kind of place. Those are things that are valued in their culture. Or in Los Angeles where you see like these, 
Persian guys and they're just extraordinarily wealthy and they throw money around, it's really flashy and you think this is kind of disgusting. And then you get to know them and you realize these are people that were, were not allowed to showcase wealth where they came from. So now it's sort of a different level of, they're adapting to American culture in a lot of ways by living in these flashy areas and throwing these things around. And you'll see second and third generation folks who just don't care about that stuff. And it's really interesting to notice. And I think speaking of respect, you know, a great way to sort of kick that off, and you'd mentioned this before, is is finding something about them that you respect and acknowledging that. Do you want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. So I think the first example I was thinking of when I was on this trip was just the ability to learn someone's language and understand how they use words and what they're, how they describe things. And I think that there can be some situations in more local context, whereas if you try to speak exactly like the other person, um, it may come off as patronizing or condescending. But I think there is an, uh, there is an effort to understand how people use words and use language. And I'll give a good example because you brought up something that I think is very interesting that, uh, the idea, you know, you meet other groups of people who, let's say, speak English. And maybe they're not speaking in English in the way that you speak English. And so those people are wrong. And there's a strong tendency to kind of look down on people who use various dialects of English. So, you know, if you are from England, maybe people from Scotland, oh, those people don't speak English well. Or if you're from the north of the States, the people from the south of the States, oh, those people don't speak English well. Or, you know, you're from one province in Canada and another province, those people are, are using uh, English improperly. And if you instead... You look at, okay, they're speaking a different dialect of English, kind of like a different language, although the difference is much more slight. And try to understand, you know, what are the words they're using? Try to understand it. And you show the people that, you know, you're not trying to um, impose that your way is the best way and they're doing it wrong, but you're trying to understand the language they use. I think that's very important, very helpful. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, man. This is excellent. Really appreciate your time. Guys can find more from you, of course, at scotthyoung.com slash blog. We're going to link that up in the show notes as well. Yeah, really appreciate you coming by, dropping by, talking about your travels and uh, and how you succeeded in them. Definitely, and again, anybody who wants to come to my website, we have short videos. We've put together little documentaries about the process of learning languages, so it's sort of my off-the-cuff description of how we did this, going to these countries, fully immersing, doing the language learning. Uh, I think these videos should really show you kind of what the process is like, maybe what to expect. So if you're thinking, you know, maybe I'd like to go somewhere, finally learn Spanish or do something like that, maybe go to Mexico for two months or, or some project like that, I'm hoping that this could give you an idea of what's possible or what you might be able to accomplish. Thanks so much, man. Really appreciate right. it. Take care. Hope you guys enjoyed that. I really think it is interesting that Cultures do develop people and they adapt to those things, right? So you can even look in your own backyard and see different cultures inside your own country and how you might view them a little bit differently based on their adaptations. And once you start to see those things as adaptations and not inferior to your own, it really does open up a whole new world to you. And of course, generating connections with those people using vulnerability and other AOC concepts is, is something we've explored here a lot on the show. So I hope you guys really dug that as much as I enjoyed talking to Scott. Show feedback and guest suggestions should go right to me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. It's a fanarchy. It's run by you. I always rely on you to send me guest suggestions. Keep your finger on the pulse. Know somebody who's a good fit. Send me an email. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Scott on Twitter. We'll have his Twitter linked up in the show notes. Bootcamp live program details, bootcamps.theartofcharm.com. Remember, there's two dots in there. And if you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher or something like that, 
make it happen. Getting this stuff delivered automatically is really the most sensible and only sensible way to do this. Of course, we have our iPhone and Android apps available at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone or slash Android. Enjoy, and special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. So go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web, preferably both. Have a great week, go out there and get social, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.